Our main text today is going to be in Luke chapter 10, but we're going to pick up reading here in just a few moments for context in Luke chapter 9 in verse 57. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to go ahead and make your way there in a message entitled, A Heart for the Lost. I spent the last two weeks in South Asia in the area of the world that represents the greatest concentration of lostness spiritually on the face of the planet. I had opportunity to be involved in several different uh, training opportunities and teaching uh, opportunities that God gave me. I'll talk a little bit more specifically about those in the evening service tonight. Uh, But it was a reminder, really, of the book of Acts come alive uh, to see how God is at work among the nations and among the people groups and to see how his church is multiplying through the advancement of the gospel. Uh, Our personnel are serving in some of the most difficult places in the world full-time, and they have the responsibility to go in and uh, gain entry into areas that we did not previously have entry into among unreached and unengaged people groups, to see the seed of the gospel sown and to see people come to faith in Christ and groups gathered. And when those groups gather, they become churches, leaders are trained, the work is multiplied, and it continues on. And to be able to serve in those type of areas, you are able to see uh, really a front row view of how God is at work in the world. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning as I go through the message. But just a reminder of why we exist as a church. We exist for the glory of God. And he blesses us, and we have the privilege of growing as disciples of Jesus and encouraging one another along the way and helping each other through the sorrows of life as well as rejoicing when things are happy. But then we have this one mission, this one purpose that we are called to until Jesus returns. And that one purpose and that one mission is to take the gospel to people who have not heard. That begins in our own community and it extends all the way to the ends of the earth. And if we are about the mission of God, he will use us and bless us, and we'll have the privilege of seeing his glory made known among the nations, and we'll see God's plan unfold. In our passage today, Jesus appointed followers of his, in addition to those closest disciples who were with him, to go ahead of him and proclaim the gospel in the cities and the villages that Jesus was planning to go and to minister. In the broader context of Luke, by the time we come to chapter 9, uh, Jesus is shifting his ministry and his focus toward Jerusalem. His journey was not direct. He would visit Jerusalem on several occasions, but this section includes when Jesus was leaving the Galilee and he was preparing to make his way in that direction toward the ultimate purpose for which he had come which was to give his life on the cross for our sins, to be buried and be raised from the dead, and then ascend back into heaven. Jesus in Luke 9 clarified the cost of discipleship. The word follow is used for emphasis several times. So we use the language and the terminology as disciples that we are following Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. That means that we are walking in the way of Jesus as people who have been forgiven of our sins, 
Our hope and our trust is in the Savior of the world. We are about the business of God our Father, and we recognize that this life is not all there is. There is an eternity that awaits us. And one day when we get to heaven together and we gather around the throne of God, we're going to see the vision of Revelation 7, 9, uh, a reality, because there will be peoples from every tribe, tongue, and language who will gather around the throne of God and give praise and glory to the Lamb who was slain for our sins. And this is our purpose. So we, as we follow Jesus, we are going in a very definite direction. We're going toward that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. And we are longing for that time when we will be in the presence of God forever with all who have called on the name of Jesus. So I begin reading here in Luke chapter 9 and verse 57. It says, as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first, let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And then he continues with this theme of discipleship as we begin reading in chapter 10 and verse 1 in the sending out of these additional disciples. After this, the Lord appointed 72 or 70, depending on your translation. I'll address that in just a moment. And he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He told them, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag, traveling bag, or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Now verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing at all will harm you. 
However, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, the number of the disciples was either 70 or 72, depending on the manuscript variation. I tend to think that it was the number 70 for a couple of reasons. Uh, There were 70 descendants of Jacob who went to Egypt with him in Exodus chapter 1. There were also 70 elders in Israel, uh, according to Exodus 24. Uh, The people of that day would have recognized generally 70 nations because of the table of nations back in the book of Genesis. And while it's important, the number that went, what is most important is that they went. And what is even more important than that is not the names of the people who went, but the fact that they were ordinary servants like us. They were followers of Jesus. They were people who had been redeemed by the grace of God. And they were willing to go and to do what Jesus called them to do. And Jesus sent these workers out with some very specific instructions. They were to go into the towns that Jesus was going to visit. Uh, Apparently not just Jewish towns, but also those of the Samaritans and the Gentiles as well. Uh, Some of the specifics that they were instructed with are not uh, normative for us. Uh, They're not prescriptive for us, but they are descriptive of the mission that we have. And the instructions that were given as disciples of Jesus are instructions that all of us are to follow. And that's what I want us to consider in these few moments that we have together are the instructions that Jesus gave for people who have a heart for the lost. And the first instruction is, if we have a heart for the lost, we should pray for the harvest. It's important that we pray for the harvest. Now, there's a clear tension here between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in prayer. There is a clear tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in salvation as well. Because God is the author of salvation from the beginning to the end. He is the one who convicts us of our sin, and he is the one who brings us all the way to the point of salvation. But yet we are told that we are specifically to repent and believe in the gospel. So while God is the author of salvation and we are simply the recipients of the gift, we are to respond in light of what has been communicated to us and follow Jesus. That's how it works. Well, here there's a tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man as it relates to prayer in the economy of God. God is sovereign over the harvest, but yet God invites us into his work through prayer. He told these sent ones specifically, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is echoed in Matthew chapter 9 in verse 35 to 38. It says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The language of the harvest is familiar in the New Testament. It's something that presents to us a bit of insight, if you will, into 
the kingdom of God. And Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. He's reminding us that there is much work to be done in the kingdom of God. And the workers are even yet small in number in proportion to the task. So if the harvest is great and there is much work to be done in the kingdom of God and the workers are few in relation to the harvest, that says that we need to be praying for more workers to go into the harvest. And prayer is essential to this. Now, the idea of the harvest being plentiful or bountiful is actually an encouraging word. It says to us that there are many people who are yet to be brought into the kingdom of God. The harvest is great all over the world. There are people being brought into the family of God. The fields are ready with a big crop to be harvested, and the time to harvest is now. As we know from this farming analogy, a crop is only going to last so long. It's not going to be good, but for a while, and then it'll spoil. So if we use the harvest analogy in terms of human life, human life is limited in terms of its span, and people only have an opportunity to believe while they're alive. So if this harvest is plentiful and God is drawing people to himself through it, then we want to be urgent about it as we move forward because we recognize the importance of the time that God has given us. Now here's the point. Prayer is primary in the midst of all that we have to do in the work of the kingdom. We pray, then we sing. We pray, then we preach. We pray, then we give. We pray, then we organize. We pray, then we go. We pray, then the Lord of the harvest sends us out into the harvest. One of the things that I was struck with last week as we were in some of the uttermost parts of the region that I was in was the intensity of the prayers of the people. In one training area that I was in, there are several generations of new church plants that have been mapped, and it all started by the faithfulness of national workers who were trained and equipped to go further into the harvest, to see the gospel seeds sown, to see groups gathered, to see churches begun, disciples trained, leaders developed, and then continuing on in that mission. And as those people gathered together, workers from multiple different areas and multiple different groups of churches that were representative, there was an intensity in their prayers that is unlike anything you will typically see in the West, or unlike anything you will typically see in our midst. There was a fervor as those brothers and sisters gathered there, and there is a concert of prayer throughout the day interspersed within the training and the development that they were receiving. There were these concerts of prayer where people were crying out collectively to God, asking God for his power and asking God for his work to go forth. You see, that's the kind of spiritual fervor that we need if we're going to see a church be faithful and effective. We have to have fervor in our prayer and understand the calling that God has placed on us. A.T. Pearson said, if missions languish, it's because the whole life of godliness is feeble. The command to go everywhere and preach to everybody is not obeyed until the will is lost by self-surrender in the will of God. Living, praying, giving, and going will always be found together. 
This quote has been attributed to uh, Hudson Taylor. It's been modified by some through the years, but it goes something like this. If the church is going to go forward in the mission, the church is going to go forward in the mission on its knees in prayer. Not according to its ingenuity, not according to its creativity, not according to its power, not according to its political involvement, not according to the personalities of the people that are involved. The church will go forward in its mission through prayer. And the reason that a church will go forward in its mission through prayer is because it is by the power of God that anything eternal comes to pass. And for us to pray, we need to see what Jesus saw. When Jesus saw the crowds, he saw the greatest need of lost people. He knew that lost people are desperate and hopeless apart from the good news of Jesus. He saw the lost people as sheep without a shepherd. He saw the potential in the harvest. John chapter 4 and verse 35, don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for the harvest. So let me just ask you this question. Do you pray regularly for the harvest? Is there a fervor in your heart, in your life for God's work around the world? Have you prayed in the last week specifically for your personal witness, for opportunities to tell other people about the love of Jesus and your sphere of influence? Do you take seriously prayer for the mission work of this church? When you see listed in the information that you receive the fact that there's a mission team going out from this church, do you just see that as another bullet point in the handout? Or do you see it as an opportunity to go to God in prayer? You understand, we give credit to the importance of prayer many times and then don't pray as we should. And why is that? It's a deficiency in faith. You have to believe that when you pray toward God's mission, you are just as much a participant as you are when you go. It's collective what God is doing. And he does that through the prayers of his people. So we're making opportunities available to you to understand better what the mission of this church is about. Uh, we're giving you opportunities to come together collectively and pray for our gospel work here in our own community and around the world. There are opportunities for you to pray for the many church plants that we are directly engaged with uh, and asking God to work through them right here in our own state and in the surrounding states. I'd encourage you to go to the North American Mission Board website, namb.net, and you'll find there a prayer uh, opportunity for you. And it's organized in different ways that you can specifically pray for mission and church planting around North America. You can go to imb.org with the International Mission Board, and there's a specific area on there that's to pray. And it will give you a daily opportunity to pray for how God is working among the nations. And if we don't keep these things in front of us, they're not going to be matters of first importance. And there are going to be other things that are going to steal our time. 
The focus of all of this is the glory of God. Was it not in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus began with a prayer for the glory of the name of God our Father? Our priority in prayer should be for His glory and for His work in the kingdom. So when we pray, we're praying for God's glory, and then we're specifically saying, Lord, send out workers into your harvest. We don't need better techniques. We need more prayer. The imperative for the workers was to go, and it's our imperative as well as Jesus sends us out. And Jesus said we are to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Now, I love the language here. In the original language, it has the idea of actually throwing out. So it's, a, it's not just a, uh, let's go if it's convenient or if it works out and we have time. No, it's praying that the Lord would propel these workers into the harvest, that they'd be thrown out there into the harvest to do the work of the kingdom. And it's the idea of us understanding what is at stake. There's a sense in which we're all called to the work, and then there's also a sense in which God specifically gifts and calls people out to a lifetime of ministry and mission as well. And I think sometimes we are uh, reticent to pray for God to call out the called because we're afraid that might be us. If you were to ask most American parents and even most American church parents what they would want for their children, they'd tell you they want them to have happiness and get a good education and get a good job. And Sometimes Christian parents, about three or four down the list, will say, and I want them to serve God. I wonder what would happen and how the mission of God would be impacted if that was number one, if that was priority focus, number one, that God would use us and our families to work in the harvest that he's called us to. I referenced J. Hudson Taylor earlier, the pioneer missionary to China. He said the great need is not for more elaborate pleas for help. If we're to meet the needs of the world, two things must happen. First, there must be earnest prayer to the Lord of the harvest. Second, there must be a deepening of the spiritual life of the church so that people will be unable to stay home. The second instruction for people who have a heart for the lost is to work in the harvest. To work in the harvest. The sent ones went out with a sense of mission and purpose. Now watch this connection. Don't miss this. God does the saving and God does the sending. God does not save us so that we can sit. God saves us so that we can be sent. In whatever context that looks like, that's his call. The workers here are compared to a hardworking farmer. A hardworking farmer sweats and labors for the harvest. He, he plows, he sows seeds, he cultivates, and then ultimately he harvests Jesus saw the need for these workers, and Jesus' viewpoint is that of a farmer who has a great crop that is ready for harvest but doesn't have enough help. More help is needed in the kingdom. What an interesting illustration this is that Jesus gives us. On the one hand, the Lord will accomplish all that he has purposed. He will. If we believe that God is sovereign and his 
providence is real and that God's glory will be made known to the ends of the earth. And if we believe the reality of Revelation 7, 9, and we have that vision of people gathered around the throne of God, giving praise and glory to the Lamb from every tribe, tongue, and nation, then we must believe it will come to pass. But the question is, will we do our part on mission for his glory as faithful disciples? Or will we shrink back and just do what's comfortable and easy and convenient and be ashamed when we meet the Lord for our lack of faithfulness? Now, Jesus warned his disciples that they were being sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In fact, opposition and even danger are inevitable. I was with a brother just a few days ago who took his family and went to a most difficult place to serve among Muslim peoples as God's call on his life. He's seen great fruit in that work, and his work has transitioned a little bit now uh, to a different area of focus of leading leaders and training trainers. But somewhere along the way in his calling of trying to reach among the Muslim peoples, he was going to what was supposed to be a Bible study gathering with a brother that was presumably on the same team. And he goes to this housing area one night. He's headed to this Bible study, and this brother says to him, there's some people down here I want you to talk to. Let's just go a little bit further down here. And he said, okay, let's go. Let's go talk to him. And they opened the door and went in the door. And there were some men that were gathered in the room. As he walks in the door, the door shuts behind him. They close the door, lock it, block it. More men come into the room, and they severely beat the servant of the Lord. Could have killed him. It's only by God's grace that he was delivered out of that through a series of circumstances. But do you think that deterred him from the mission? Absolutely not. Do you think that caused him to do what was safe and to pack up his family and come back to the comfortable confines of what he knew here on this side of the ocean? Absolutely not. You know why I'm convinced that was not the case in his life? It's because he knew what Jesus had said. That we go out as sheep among the wolves and opposition and even danger are inevitable. So as we go, we must go focused on the mission. Jesus tells them how they're to go in terms of their traveling and trusting people to help them and so forth. And he will be faithful in that. But our focus has to be on the main thing of being workers in the kingdom. Talked to another brother last week who had served in a very large church in a city of about maybe 10 million people where God had raised up a body of believers by the thousands. God had done a great work. This brother has served as a mission pastor in that church for 18 years. He said, one day the Holy Spirit convicted him that here he was, having been serving for 18 years in this one church, and he hadn't really been sharing the gospel. He said, I resigned from my position in the church, and I determined that God was calling me 
to be an evangelist. I was just going to spend my days sharing the gospel on the streets to as many people as I possibly could. He was like George Mueller. He said, I've not asked anybody for any help. At my house, I go and I pray in my closet and I ask the Lord for what I need. And he said, the Lord has provided more for me now than he did when I was in that position. Now, friends, I understand that's not everybody's calling. But we ought to catch at least a little bit of it. We ought to have at least a little bit of that kind of passion to work in the harvest. Do we think about it when we see people what their spiritual condition is? Do we really know the spiritual condition of our family members and our friends and our neighbors and the people that we work with and the people in our community? Do we care to do the work of the harvest where God has placed us in our context? And do we care about those who have not yet heard? One of the evenings that we had free, we went up into an area in the hills among some people called the Bega peoples. Um, the Bega peoples are technically reached as an entire group, meaning that there's somewhere around 2% of them who have come to faith in Christ in this particular region. But yet that's 98 or 99% of the people who have not yet called on the name of Jesus. We went to an area of no running water, no electricity, no modern conveniences. We hiked a little ways up into the hillside in the dark with our phones to light the way. We sat down in a little room with a little small light right in the middle of the room that was powered by a battery. You could see the shadows on the wall. Gathered in that room were a handful of people, seven people, who have recently come to faith in Christ, mostly from the same family unit, but from a couple of family units there, right there in that particular settlement. And there was a national worker who was with us, who was there to story through the gospel of Mark. He was someone who had been reached by someone who had been reached to go reach people who had not yet been reached. And there he was, going through the scripture, and these people are hungry to hear what he has to say. See, there's people all over the world that are hungry to hear about the good news of Jesus. But the question is, will we be those who pray for the workers to be sent? And will we be those who work in the harvest ourselves. Make yourself available to work in the harvest. The third and final instruction for people who have a heart for the lost is to proclaim the message of the harvest. Now notice the content of the message in verse 9. The kingdom of God has come near to you. He repeats it again a little bit further down. Uh, This is a one-sentence description of our job. This is a one-sentence insight into our purpose as disciples of Jesus, and that is to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. And the kingdom of God has come near in the person in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the heart of this message is that the kingdom of God has come near because Jesus Christ has come to save. He's come to live a perfect life 
and to die on the cross and to be buried and to be raised and to ascend back to the right hand of God the Father. And in the message of the gospel, when we proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which is the heart of the gospel and the person of Christ, what we're doing is we're manifesting the very presence of the kingdom of God that comes near to the people. It's not up to us if it's received or rejected. We can't control that. We can control whether or not we make the message known. The workers here were given... A particular power by God in the harvest to heal the sick and to authenticate the message. There was a miraculous manifestation of the power of God in the mission to authenticate the message of God. And of course, God is the same God who healed the sick then. He can heal the sick now. But the greatest miracle of all is when a person comes to faith in Christ and is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And the vehicle through which people are brought from spiritual death to spiritual life is through the proclamation of the gospel and the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit of God. That's how it happens. And we're messengers. We're workers who have prayed. And we're workers willing to work. And we're workers who have a message. You see, I think we need to feel what Jesus felt. When he saw the people, he had compassion down deep. You know what I think we have by and large in the American church today? It's not a problem of knowing what to do. It's a problem of caring and giving a flat rip about what we're supposed to be doing. That's the real problem. We have a problem with the great commandment before we have a problem with the great commission. We can talk to people about the great commission all day long. I can plead with you to pray, and I can plead with you to surrender yourself to be a worker in the kingdom, and I can plead with you to share the message of the gospel. I can plead with you to be a good witness for Jesus, but if you're not doing it, it's not because you don't know what to do. It's because you are unwilling to do it, because your first love is not where it needs to be. So I'm calling you beyond yourself. I'm calling you beyond the American dream. I'm calling you beyond a personal level of comfort that, where it's all about us. And I think that's what's happened in many places in the church today is we are so inwardly focused and so comfort-oriented that we just forgot what we were even supposed to be doing. And yet here we have a message that the kingdom of God has come near. And the message of the kingdom is that there is salvation for all who will surrender to Jesus, who is the king. When these workers went to these areas, they were to announce peace. Peace and blessing is for all who accept the message of God's kingdom. Peace was a common Jewish blessing that wished fullness of God's blessing on the recipients. But there's a terrible warning of judgment to come here. And wrapped up in this terrible warning of judgment is that those who have had more light will receive even harsher judgment, but the end result will be the same for all who have not received the gift of eternal life. The cities that Jesus warned of were cities that were familiar with Jesus' message and miracles. Sodom and Tyre and Sidon were pagan Gentile cities. 
the warning uh, is that those who are familiar with these truths and reject them will be judged harshly. Sodom became almost representative of judgment as a whole. Uh, the people of Sodom had the witness of Lot, but these cities had the witness of forerunners and eyewitnesses of the Messiah. Sodom could have been saved by repenting. These cities could have entered the kingdom of God by faith. And Capernaum, for example, Jesus says they, they thought highly of themselves. He said, you know what's coming for you? Destruction. Have you ever been to Capernaum? You know what's in Capernaum today? It's not a great and flourishing city. There aren't beautiful high-rises and a flourishing of humanity. There's a pile of rubble. It's nothing more than a historical site. It's just an archaeological dig. That's all that's left. Why? Because they rejected the message and turned out to be an uninhabited pile of rubble. Because they would not hear the message of the kingdom. And some of you may say, well... If I only saw Jesus, I would believe. Or if, if I only experienced another miracle, oh, then I would believe in the gospel. No, you wouldn't. You know why you wouldn't? Because your heart is hard about the information that you've already received. Friend, take it as a clear warning that if you think if you only had a little bit more evidence that you would believe, Understand that it is the hardness of your heart and it is the blindness that is brought to your soul by your spiritual enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, who is keeping you from believing. It is not the God of the universe. Because the God of the universe has provided himself with a witness. We can see the beauty of all of creation. We see the witness of the word of God. We have the witness of the crucified and risen son of God. We have the witness of the people of God. And this message is that the kingdom of God has come near, repent, and believe. That's the message. And if we don't repent and believe, there's judgment coming. Because it is a terrible thing for people to reject the gospel. So I say this to you in closing. We must live with urgency in the harvest. The day is coming. Time is short. And we have to keep eternity in view. Did you know that this morning in the great state of West Virginia, that more than 80% of our population will not walk through the doors of a gospel preaching church? That's more than 8 out of 10 of our friends and neighbors, people we work with, people we see at Walmart, eight out of 10 will not. Now, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know how many of them presumably might have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but I can tell you eight out of 10 people in our midst will not care to come and worship the king, even if they proclaim to know the king who are physically able to do so. And that ought to break our hearts. If we have the good news, we should have, want them to have the good news. Do you know there's still over 3,000 unreached, unengaged people groups? One region that I was in just a few days ago has 450,000 people among one particular people group, and they are unreached and unengaged with the gospel. D does that burden us at all? When we look into the pages of Scripture, does that cause us to have concern for their spiritual eternity? The certainty of our own death should drive us with urgency in the harvest. 
We've only got one opportunity to serve God. And you understand that life is but a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And I, for one, do not want to stand before the God of all the universe someday and say, God, I'm embarrassed by what I've done with what you've entrusted to me. I don't want to be embarrassed. I want to be faithful. I want to be useful. However God determines that to be. Someone said we ought to care more than some think is wise. We ought to risk more than some think is safe. We ought to dream more than some think is practical. And we ought to expect more than some think is possible. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment. This closing time of response has two parts. First of all, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, whose names are written in heaven. Do you have a heart for the lost? You you know whether or not you care. Do you have a heart for the lost? If you do, ask God to stoke that fire and fervency in your soul for an even greater heart for the lost. If you don't, ask Jesus to give you compassion for the lost and a clear witness in your heart and on your lips to pray, to be sent, to work, to labor in the harvest. And then maybe there's somebody here today who has never called on the name of Jesus. And I'm saying to you, through the word and the testimony of Jesus, the Son of God, the kingdom of of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near to you this day through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And God will save your soul if you'll turn from your sin and turn to him in faith and receive the gift of everlasting life. I'll be here in the front to receive you for a few moments as we sing and then even as we close out the service. May God stir our hearts to have a heart for the lost. God, thank you for your word and this this example of the sending of your disciples into the world. We are an extension of that through the church of the living Christ. And we want to do the things that will make a difference for eternity. So help us to that end. Help us to understand what that looks like in our lives, in our local context, and our vocations, and our families, and, and then how that extends through the work of the church and perhaps in our individual lives all the way to the ends of the earth. May your name be praised. May the name of Jesus be high and lifted up through us. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.